Well, this is the last week in our sermon series called One Another. This is week seven. We're covering these things, these one another statements in the New Testament, because we believe that how you live life with your fellow Christians really matters. So the question I want to start with as we get going today is this. What should the Christian life look like outside of a Sunday? I'm going to leave here in a little bit after my two-hour sermon. Just kidding. It's close to that. And when you head out, what's the rest of the week going to look like regarding your relationship with other Christians? How many times a week or a month ought you be getting together with other believers in your life? And what exactly should you do on those times? Well, quite simply, the Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't prescribe how our schedules ought to look through all those days. It just gives us these important instructions on what we should be doing in life with one another. And we are to apply these things in our day-to-day. Today, I want to go ahead and open our Bibles to Acts 2. Verses 42 through 47. This is a bit of a famous passage in the New Testament because it talks about what life was like for the very earliest believers in the very earliest days of the Christian church. Day one kind of believers. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 42 through 47. I'll read through those and pray. And then we'll unpack that section uh, a little bit. And at the end, I have a few points of application that I hope will be helpful as we summarize and conclude the series today. So again, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. You can follow along with me in your Bibles as we read. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, as we spend some time in your word this morning, I pray that you would help me preach well, uh, help me to offer only what is true in a way that is clear and helpful. Father, we want to be shaped by your word. Help us to submit to it. And Lord, we know that when we do that, we receive great joy. And Lord, that's what we are seeking. We want the great joy that comes from our obedience to the scriptures. And so Lord, do that for us today. Help enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see things maybe we haven't seen before. And Lord, definitely as we leave, to not forget what we learn from your word. And walk away from it as as a man who sees his face in a mirror and walks away forgetting what his reflection looks like. Father, help us to carry these things in our hearts. That they be a service to us for your glory and our joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the setup for this passage is that this is the very beginning, the genesis of the Christian church. Jesus Christ had already lived his life in ministry. He's already gone to the cross on behalf of sinners. He's already died at the hands of Jews and Gentiles and been buried and then raised again on the third day and then then showed himself to people and then ascended into heaven. And as he ascended into heaven, he commissioned his saints. He told them, go to Jerusalem, 
wait, wait in Jerusalem, wait in the city until I send my Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what just happened at the beginning of this chapter. Beginning of chapter 2, the Holy Spirit of God was poured out upon 120 believers waiting in an upper room in Jerusalem. They began to speak in tongues, which is described here as speaking in such a way that a miraculous thing was taking place, that the crowds of people who had gathered in Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast heard these disciples proclaiming the good news in their own languages. Peter then preached the very first Christian sermon. People got saved. More than 3,000 got baptized. And now they're organizing their lives with one another. And this is what it says about them, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I want to break down these four things that we see here. I think that this is a beautiful summary of what the people of God were doing with one another. And while you'll notice that this is written here as a description, it's just describing what those days looked like, the rest of the New Testament will unpack these very same things quite thoroughly and will make sure that we see these things as prescribed for us in the Christian church. So in other words, we're not only seeing this as, oh, that's interesting, they do that, how, how fascinating. We're to see this and go, we are to do likewise. So this is what we should be doing for our church. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They listened to what the apostles taught. They gathered around these, these men of God who had truth to share, and they learned. This was not a group project. This was not a democratization of ideas. Hey, we're starting this new religion. What thoughts would you like to include? No. They devoted themselves to a singular source of teaching. The believers gathered and listened. You know, I remember in college, uh, my undergraduate, occasionally a professor would come in, and I, I was sure they just forgot to prepare for that day, because they'd be like, hey, we had a lesson. What do you all think about this? Those are my least favorite days, because I always remember thinking like, man, I'm paying tons of money. I'm putting myself in a position to kind of prepare and learn. I want to hear what the expert has to say about this. If I want to know what the students have to say, I'll ask them after, but we've only got one hour with you. Please, everybody else be quiet. Let that person share what's going down. I think what's going on there is a little bit of that impulse, the desire to hear what was coming from a particular source. Of course, we can learn much good from others around us, but these believers devoted themselves to, not the scuttlebutt of whoever was chatting around them, the apostles' teaching. They wisely wanted to hear from those who had followed the Lord Jesus and were now sharing his teaching. You might remember, if you've ever read these passages before, that back in chapter, uh, uh, chapter 1, before Jesus ascended, he had actually given them a declaration. We can find that in Matthew 28. He gives them a great commission, tells them what they're to go and do. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which just took place right before this verse in Acts 2. Doing what next? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That was the command. That's what Jesus commissioned his disciples to do. So they were doing that exact thing. They were doing the exact command. They were teaching all that Christ had commanded and that people should observe those things. This is why one of the chief qualifications of an apostle that we would see back in chapter 1 
was that he must have been an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. Why? So he would know what Jesus taught and be able to share that with others. In other words, it wasn't guys who were like, hey, I heard about this Jesus guy. I never knew him. But uh, I suspect he'd say stuff like this. Come here. No, 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 no. These are guys who spent years with Christ, knew the teaching, and that's what they were sharing. So how are we to do this today? We're doing it right now. We open the Word of God, and this is the summary of the apostles' teaching, the New Testament. The written words of the apostles of Christ and those who were commissioned by them into their approval. And not just occasionally crack the spine of a Bible. Not just, hey, consider a verse or two infrequently at random some days throughout your work days. No, 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 no. Devoted themselves to great care in considering the word of God. What else did they devote themselves to? Fellowship. The fellowship. That's koinonia. You know, the Bible, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and so our earliest manuscripts are Greek. Koinonia, that means close relationship. It's a sharing of life. That word also means participation in or with. It means partnership with one another. The Sunday morning gathering, then, ought not look like a monastery where each believer comes in whenever he or she pleases. We all separate out into our own individual rooms, and while we're there, we pensively think through the thoughts of God, and when we think our time is done, we get up and quietly meander our way out so we don't disturb everybody else. No, meditation is a wonderful part of the Christian life. That's not what corporate gathering is for. It's for us to be together, fellowship with one another, shake hands together, hug one another, holy kiss with one another, share in life, laugh, cry, pray with one another. We're to do that participation when we gather together as a church. You know, we do those meet and greet times where we spend five minutes. The introverts hate that. I know it. I'm sorry, introverts. I know you hate five minutes. Like, it's been one minute. You're like, oh my goodness, four more. I've got to sit here. Listen, I know that will not satisfy the fellowship requirements. That, that won't satisfy that for us. But it's at least in one way just to, to try to uh, prompt, prompt the impulse that hopefully is in us as believers that we are supposed to have that with one another. Fellowship with each other is supposed to be more than merely handshake on a greet on the way in and handshake as you're greeted on the way out. It's supposed to be more than that. In fact, I think about our new church building we're, we're praying that we can get. The one we're aiming at and looks like we're going to get has got a gigantic lobby. And when we've shown it to people, I've walked through it with a few, uh, few people before and shown them the plans. And if you've been to the, the, kinda, the, the night that we did a whole uh, explanation of the building and answered questions, we showed pictures. And people asked, like, man, that's, the lobby's huge. Isn't that frivolous? No. No, it's not. Because this is critical that we have space that we can do lobby life. We can do this fellowship together. So it's not just get together to worship, church is done, hey, everybody out. Everybody out, closing the doors. No, linger, stay, share meals with people, let your kids run around a little bit. Do a little bit of that together. Fellowship is a critical thing for us to share in as we gather on the Lord's day. Next is the breaking of bread. Breaking of bread. Now, you need to know that the word, the language being used here in Greek, could either mean dinner, just having a meal, or it could be referring to that ordinance of communion or Lord's Supper. It could be either here. And this exact phrase is used twice in the passage we're covering today. We'll cover another one later. And Luke has used this a few other places in Acts and then in the, the gospel that he wrote, gospel according to Luke. Uh, commentators have a bunch of different views on this one. I, I, I agree with John Calvin's view on this, that where it is listed here, the breaking of bread, 
that right here it's referring to communion, and in a few verses it's referring to uh, 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 having meals with people. And I think that, like he did, because of the context of this. Those things that are listed there, they came right after the baptism of the believers that came into saving faith. This is the kind of thing that happens when the church gathers corporately on the Lord's Day. Sunday gathering. When we come together as the whole gathered body. Whereas later, I think we're going to see what happens when we kind of separate out into homes and smaller gatherings. You can study that for yourself and maybe come to your own conclusions there. That's what I think is going on. Jesus commanded that we should share in communion regularly. And we should do so as a proclamation of his death, a reminder of his perfect sacrifice on the cross and of our sins that put him there. You know, at the Mission Church, we have communion every Sunday. We like doing this. We want to do this every time we gather together. We don't cast judgment on churches who do this regularly, but less frequently than we do. But this is something that we just love to celebrate every time the saints gather together. In fact, it's the thing that I like the least about two services as a church. I've talked to you. I've whined about two services plenty of times for you before. I think the body is supposed to be one gathering of the people. And I'm just here, forewarning, the first Sunday we're all together in a building and we have communion together, I'm going to be a blubbering idiot. I, you're going to have to memorize 1 Corinthians 11, that part, because I'm going to go, oh, when the Lord gets us together, because it's going to be so wonderful that everybody together doing that. And this is not something that we came up with. Somewhere in history, 500 years in, decided, you know what? You know that thing Jesus did? With the bread and the, the, the cup, maybe we should just do something like that. No. Since day one, they devoted themselves to this. And we likewise share in communion with them in some part when we get to do this together. Lastly, prayers. Speaking to God together. Of course, it is wonderful to pray alone. Jesus even instructs us how to do that in the Gospels. And that we should. But we are also to pray together. During our services, there's a bunch of times we pause and we just pray together. Someone prays from the front, we do this together. Our hope is that when we gather, there's prayers in the lobby, prayers here when we're talking with each other, prayers as we're heading on out together. That should be a part of our gathering because prayer is such a critical piece of what it means to be a believer. This summary verse is what the believers did when they gathered together, even in the earliest days. Follow me into the next verse and look what happens as a result of this. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Awe, like awesome, awe, reverence. Actually, the word in Greek here is phobos. You recognize that? It's from phobia. Because almost every other time in the New Testament this word is used, it's rendered as fear. It's a fear, something to be afraid of. Why? Because the people were experiencing miracles, signs and wonders being done at the hands of these apostles. And the challenge of life that that was going to require for them to repent of sins, turn in faith to Jesus, could very well be costly for them. This was not a little thing. Awe came upon fear, came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. God was authenticating the gospel message by these apostles by empowering them to do wonders and signs. You remember just the verse before, what were the believers first devoted to? The apostles' teaching. Well, how should they know to trust those guys? What if another dude came in through a different gate and he's like, hey, I'm one of those apostle guys too, listen to me. How would you know the difference between a true and a false apostle if you didn't even yet have a Bible to open up and go to and go, wait, that's not true, you said something different. What would be a way to know for sure? And the answer is clear. God authenticated the true apostles by miracles. Things that could only be done by the hand of God. 
And so, this was a way that they could devote themselves to only the most trustworthy, the ones that God had truly sent. How else could they be certain that these men were actually sent of God? How else could they be certain that they were speaking for Jesus? You know, the same kind of thing happened in John chapter 3. When Nicodemus, a, a Jewish leader, comes to Jesus... And he says this as he first arrives on the scene. Late at night, he's trying to find out some things about Jesus' message. He says this, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Makes sense, right? So how do you know that you should trust that guy and not this guy? Well, that one just raised someone from the dead. So I'm going to go listen to what he said, right? And that's the idea. They were watching as they were observing and happening. It was an amazing thing. As the gospel began to spread around the world. Look at the next verse with me. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were generous with each other. They took care of each other's needs. In a few chapters, in chapter 6, we'll actually see there were some in this Jerusalem church who were needy enough, they actually needed to organize a daily food distribution. They were, they were widows. They weren't, they weren't going to eat today. If someone didn't provide the food and then make sure everybody got what they needed and they had to organize that to make sure that it was taken care of. In chapter 4, it even says that there was, I'm going to quote it here, not a needy person among these believers. Why? Because as soon as a need arose, it was met by the others. We should do the same for one another today. Even sacrificing for one another. It's not just like, oh, I don't really have any way to serve you. I can't can't help meet your needs. No, go sell something. If you, have, if you have something extra, go sell your belongings and possessions and distribute proceeds to anyone at your church that has needs. You know, I've known Christians before who ache for this. And in, in, our, in our world, there's so much conversation about social justice and how should we give and how should we care for people. Whose responsibility is it? Isn't it the government's job to do that? No, isn't it the Christian's job to do it? Isn't it individual communities? Lots of talk about how we deal with these kind of things together. But I've known Christians, professing uh, believers, who ache for this, but neglect everything else that has already been said that was true of the Christian church. Because of their desire for the whole social justice thing, they oftentimes go right to this, like, this is what the Christian church looked like. No, back up a couple verses. First, these were believers who were united and their desire to submit to the teaching of God's word. They were those who broke bread together. They were those who prayed together. They were those who had fellowship with one another. And too often, think, I think people today want this. I think sometimes non-believers even look at verses like this and go, yeah, that's what the Christian church should look like. Well, look at all of the Christian church should look like. You're right, it should. But it should be more than just that. So many people don't want the devotion to the apostles' teaching or prayers or shared common beliefs. In fact, look at that first line. What united these generous people together? All who believed. All who believed were together and had all things in common. You know, this is something that I've tried to make very evident as we've gone through the one another's here. You need to know that there has been a shift in Christian thinking in the last hundred years, at least in the West, that has tried to tell the believer that our greatest charge is to serve non-believers. Not true. You are first charged to love and care for other believers. 
And then, with all the overflow of the generous love that God has given to you, that should flow onto others as well. But the primary responsibility for you and other relationships in your life is to care for the believers. I want to read for you Galatians 6.10. It says this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That means everyone. That means every, every person in the world. Let us do good to everyone, listen, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You remember, Jesus didn't say, hey, this is how they will know that you are mine, by how you love the world. No, he says, don't love the world, by how you love one another. That's how they'll know that you're my disciples, that the world would see that believers take care of themselves so well, and that by itself would be a witness. So I want to point our attention to that. You don't get this kind of generosity, this beautiful giving, without first having all the other things. In fact, when you don't have those other things, those critical marks of a healthy church, then even acts of supposed generosity can become manipulative or coercive. And you may observe that taking place if we don't have those shared things previously. It's really important we get the order right. And brothers and sisters, this should be happening. The believers sacrificially met one another's needs. Why? Because they loved God and each other. They wanted to. They wanted to provide for their brothers and sisters. I'm so, so pleased to be part of a, a generous church. Honestly, one of the things that I follow in the little signal chat threads and things that we have going on very often here is if a need is made known, just give it a few minutes. Someone will respond and help meet that need. It's awesome. And the more people let needs be known, the more they get dealt with. And we want to grow in that. I'm sure we're not perfect. But we want to grow in that because we want to look just like these earliest believers with our generosity, our radical care for one another. In verse 46, kind of gives the, the summary of what this time looked for them. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You'll notice day by day was used twice there. Uh, first, it's used to describe how these believers were in constant contact with one another. They're not mere acquaintances. And here they do it. They break bread in each other's homes. Temple together, bread in homes. This is what I was pointing at before. I think this is the one that sounds very evident. This is talking about the, the, uh, the household gatherings where you're having meals together. And it sounds like that especially because it says they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The, the, the body of Christ uh, the blood of Christ in communion is not called food you know, elsewhere like that. I think this is meaning meals. They're doing this with one another. And God gave them favor in the eyes of the people around them. And he grew their congregation. The Lord did this mighty and wonderful work. You know, if you're not a believer today, you need to know what it means to be saved. You need to know that you're a sinner before an all-holy God. And as a sinner, you deserve his just judgment. Hell, separation from God for all eternity. Eternal conscious torment. That's what Jesus called it. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because we are unholy. We are unrighteous. We deserve that penalty. But God demonstrated his great love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his perfect son to live a perfect life and go to a cross and to bear the penalty for all who will ever believe in him. And if you repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, you can have eternal life in Christ alone. Jesus didn't stay dead when they buried him in the ground, but three, late, three days later, he rose from the dead. And we get that kind of eternal life. We get resurrection and perfection with him forever. 
If you're not a believer today, talk to somebody before you leave. We want you to know the gospel. We want you to know this is what we've had to do. Surrender our lives to him. Give up whatever we followed instead of him and turn in faith to him. We also need you to know that when, when a person does this, for all of us that are believers, this is what has happened. When you repent and believe, the Lord adds you to his church. It's what he does. In other words, when God provides salvation for you, it's not as though you were drowning in, in a sea and he threw a life preserver to you for you to maybe paddle your way to an isolated, deserted island to live out the rest of your days until you see him face to face. No. You were rescued onto a battleship going to war, and you're now part of the brotherhood waging those battles. It is not a lone thing. There are no spiritual Rambos. You're not designed to go do your Christian life alone. They're added to the number of those being saved. This is still true for us today. What we've read here, what we've seen in previous weeks is just, it's beautiful when it's operating like it should. Idyllic even. You could even say utopian. It's common for people to go here because this is, this is before any sin enters into the church. There's nothing bad going on yet. We'll, we'll see in a couple chapters. By chapter 5, all of a sudden, we see some sin coming in, and the Lord graciously tells us about it and then teaches us how to deal with it because we all have to deal with it in our own lives and with others. But what a beautiful passage this is. So many wonderful things. We want these to be true about our relationships. But before we move on from this text, I want you to look at a couple of things that I skipped over quickly. They attended the temple together, and they broke bread in their homes. Now, they weren't, they weren't doing uh, ritual worship at the temple like the Jews did prior to Christ, because Christ was the once and for all sacrifice. In fact, they, the temple veil was torn in two. That work was completed. But it was the, the spiritual heartbeat of Jerusalem. It's where people gathered to do that. It was a gigantic space. They could come together, praise and worship God, sing together. It was an ex- expectation that that might be present in that day. It was a good day to gather, a good place for them to get together in large groups. The apostles continued to go back there and preach and proclaim uh, the truth in the, in the temple area in order for people to hear the truth. But they gathered in large and public gatherings and then in small and private gatherings. We spent an entire seven-week sermon series on the when you come together lines in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. And there I argued over and over and over again that there's a difference between the corporate Sunday morning gathering and the rest of the gatherings that believers have. And I really think it's critical to understand this because if you don't, something will be off in your Christian relationships and at your Christian church and neither will satisfy you. Because either your church will not be doing enough Or the other relationships in your life will not be doing enough. And those expectations can lead to a lot of pain. The church gathering, even since the earliest days, was big, altogether public, and smaller and private than the home gatherings. So what should your Christian relationships look like beyond Sundays? We spent time there. You go check that sermon series and see all we walked through there. But what should the rest, what should Monday through Saturday look like for a believer today? We must be engaged in corporate worship together on Sundays. We must be a part of family worship in our individual households without even other believers there necessarily. But we need to be in relationship with each other for the rest of the week. Remember, like I said before, the Bible doesn't prescribe what your schedule should look like exactly. Exactly. Instead, we see the one another lists. 
We see the instructions given, and we're to organize our life in such a way that we accomplish those things for our good and for God's glory. So much more could be said about a lot of this, but I want to draw your attention to at least three things, three needs you have in your life relationally as a believer. As you relate to other believers, you need at least these three. And I'm going to highlight these three specifically because of conversations I've had with people at the church, specific, dedicated hours and hours and hours spent in elders' meetings over the last year to try to hone in on what might we need to encourage our brothers and sisters at the Mission Church to in this season. Consider these three with me. First, fellowship. As you relate to other believers, you need this. You need fellowship. You need Christian friendships. Jesus said that he did not come to bring peace but a sword. And that sword would necessarily divide even households. He said that some people would have to give up family, friends, even property in order to follow him. I want to listen listen to what Jesus said in Luke 18. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Yes, believers, you get eternal life at the end. Yes, believers, you get countless number of saints to worship and celebrate with. But in this age, in this time, the Lord said he will provide those replacements for us. For those who've lost those things in pursuit of the gospel, Jesus graciously provides a replacement family of faith. You know, so often my littler kids ask me why I refer to uh, my Christian uh, men in this church here as brothers. Talk to Eric or Drew or someone who comes over to my house hanging out with their families and stuff when I call them brother. And my little kids will go, why do you call him brother? Is he your brother? Is he our uncle? Well, kind of, Yeah. Because the Bible tells me that he's a brother in Christ, and I relate to him, I love him. In fact, I'm closer to him than I am to some of my actual blood-living brothers who aren't believers. Because in Christ, we have been bound together, adopted into the same family. You and I need to be regularly reminded that we are not alone. Fellowship with one another. This includes fun. This includes family times gathered together. This is, this is tears and laughter and prayer and singing and Bible. But this is where we learn about each other. It's where we relate to one another on a familial level. I, I would suspect that if you're part of a small group, and you need to know small groups aren't in the Bible. The one another's are in the Bible. And oftentimes our modern small groups do a great job at helping us check a lot of those boxes. Okay? Small groups are awesome, but they might not be sufficient. Because in my experience, most small groups check this box more than many of the others. And that's okay, because you need this. I've known people who've gotten together for small group time, and uh, you know, they're there with maybe, maybe a dozen adults and like 20 kids playing in the backyard or the basement and you know, running around the neighborhood or something. And uh, finally, towards the end of the night, they're like, oh my goodness, we didn't even get time for prayer yet. And then, but everybody's got to go. Babies are melting down and stuff, and they feel guilty. Oh, oh, we didn't do what we're supposed to do. Stop, stop. Fellowship is one of the things you're supposed to do. Maybe your expectations about what you were going to get done tonight were a little outsized. Fellowship with one another is critical. If you're newer to the Christian faith, maybe just newer to the mission church, you should know you need this in your life. 
You need to be in a community of brothers and sisters who, where you can talk together, eat together, play together, laugh together, serve together, pray together. You need people you can do that with and have regular contact with. Natural, human relationships and a supernatural bond of brotherhood or sisterhood. Fellowship is critical. Second, as you relate to other believers, you need discipleship. Discipleship. This is giving and receiving of teaching. Instruction, specific instruction. In fact, I I took a stab at a a definition of disciple and discipleship here a little bit. Try this on, see see if this works for you. This is when one believer takes an active, intentional part in another believer's sanctification. You might go, well, Rich, isn't fellowship, isn't discipleship taking place? Yes, to be sure. There is discipleship taking place when you're in fellowship together. Absolutely, I'm not saying that doesn't happen. The simple fact that believers are gathered together and sharing in any good together does offer a kind of discipleship. Praise God. Those are overlapping circles on a Venn diagram. Yes. But Jesus gave a great commission to his disciples to do what? To make disciples of all the nation. Discipleship. Baptize them and then what? Teach them everything that I've commanded and to observe all that he has commanded. That's going to take some time. That's going to take some intention. Real discipleship does not happen on accident. Man, we've been doing like the small group thing for forever and like, wow, I guess you kind of discipled me and I've kind of discipled. No, 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 no. This is intentional. This is active Discipleship relationships are more like training, training than other relationships in life. Have you ever had a brother or sister who's like, hey, let's both get fit together. Wake up tomorrow morning early, we'll meet at the gym, something like that. All of a sudden, your relationship's on a different level because that's not the same as just having coffee. Now there's something else in mind. We're here for a purpose. We both want to grow and stuff. That's, that's really important that you see that there can be different kinds of relational gatherings. We get past the how's the weather kind of conversations by the time we get here. Hopefully they're gone in the fellowship, but in discipleship, there's no time for how's the weather. I want you to think about how Jesus was always modeling what it meant to be a perfect man obeying God, and he was always teaching on how we're going to be that as well. Those two things. Jesus never turned off the discipleship switch. Oh, yeah, those things about Jesus, we're not supposed to do those. Oh, yeah, those things about Jesus. I mean, he obviously didn't mean that for us. No, no, no. He was constantly doing this. He is the supreme example of this. But additionally, we see this modeled by believers all over the New Testament. Here's a couple of the most notable examples. I, I came up to mind quite quickly. Uh, we'll see this modeled in Apollos, who in Acts chapter 18 was discipled by Priscilla and Aquila. There was this young man who loved the word Loved God. He loved the Lord, it said. He wanted to teach what's true. He was willing to debate people on what's true. He, he, was, he was, a, was a zealous young man. And Priscilla and Aquila, a, a, a couple, find this guy, and this is what it says about him in Acts chapter 18. I'll read verse 26. He, Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. See, they weren't like, hey, it looks like you need a friend. Fellowship would do that. They weren't like, you know, we can learn a lot from you. What do you have to share? No, no, no. Hey, you don't know some things that we know. Let us share those with you that you may be better equipped. 
And what did they do? They discipled Apollos, who would go on to become a well-known name and a trusted brother in Christ and an evangelist and a debater. Wonderful things happen as a result of that model. Uh, We think of Timothy and Titus, these young pastors who were discipled directly by Paul. We even get the great blessing of letters written from the Apostle Paul, written to Timothy, written to Titus, to help instruct them on how they are to live as men of God. They were disciples of the Apostle Paul. In fact, in one of those letters, Paul instructs Titus to make sure that discipleship was happening in his congregation. He says it's about do this at Ephesus. He says this in Titus chapter 2. He specifically instructs older women to teach younger women and older men to teach younger men, specifically. I want to read for you Titus 2, 3 through 5. This part will start with the women. Older women are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. In fact, you know this is the only explicit command towards women's ministry in the New Testament. There's plenty of ways that women are to to serve in the church and even serve other women in the kinds of things that all of us should be exhibiting and experiencing as believers. But if you're wanting to say, hey, what should women's ministry look like? What should I as a woman, you might say, uh, need to do to help the other women in my life? This is where you'd go. To teach older women, teaching younger women, teaching them these important things. Sisters, Have you had that in your life? Have you had older, godly women turn their attention to you and say, Honey, I've been down a few roads further than you, and I would just love to spend time with you to help make sure that I can save you some nosebleeds, help you avoid some landmines that I stepped on, show you some of the places that the Lord graciously helped me win, and I want you to win too in those same places. If you can say yes to that, you've had that happen in your life. You've had a, you've had a Christian woman, older Christian woman, sit down with you, as a, maybe as a married woman, and say, let me teach you how to submit to your husband, because it ain't easy. If, you've never, if, if you have had that, praise be to God. But I, I strongly suspect that you are a part of an unfortunate few, a fortunate few, and that's an unfortunate reality that I think that it's few. And if you haven't had that, if you're thinking like, that. I know a lot of godly older women. I, I'm grateful for what I have experienced in them, but no, I don't know anyone who's ever like grabbed hold of me and said, let's get together. I want to pour into you in these ways. Well, then something's missing. Something's missing. And it needs to be restored. I mean, seriously, do you think that the world's going to help you with that, sisters? Do you think that if you go to the world, they're going to help you submit to your husband and be homeward in your orientation and be pure in the home? Are, really? No, you and I know we must have the church operating in this way. We need discipleship. Titus 2, 6 through 8, this is now to the men. Likewise, urge the younger men, still Titus, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. This is specific instruction given. Older women teach younger women the important things they need to know. Older men teach younger men the things that they need to know. It even uses those words, older and younger. This is practical help. You need someone to instruct you in good doctrine 
and in how that doctrine should be lived out in all the areas of your life, all of the areas of your life, all of them. This is what we'd call discipleship. And it should be said, and I hope you're hearing it, you might have already been kind of sensing it, but I'll say it flatly. There is a difference between discipleship in and discipleship out. There's a difference. Way too many people in our day like to flatten everything down because it makes us feel uncomfortable to put people on different levels. That's not, the Bible doesn't care about that at all. The Bible is not at all finicky about it. The New Testament says things on repeat. There are stronger believers and weaker believers. Get over it and grow. There are those who are more spiritual amongst you and less. Grow. There are those who, are in, who, who need a different level of help at certain times. There are those who are wiser and more foolish, and there needs to be a growth. In fact, if as believers we were to look at an older brother or, brother or sister in Christ, ladies, imagine looking at a 75-year-old faithful woman who's trusted the Lord for her entire life, and look at her, and then look at your 19-year-old friend and say, they offer me the same, you're out of your mind. And you know it, don't you? You'd never let those words come out, because you know There are some things that those older brothers and sisters can have to help, to disciple, to share. Draw upon that well of goodness. And it's a blessing for both. What I want to make clear is that I think that this discipleship is most effectively done when it is, listen, not among peers. Not the blind leading the blind. Not not, not two couples getting together who both got married last month and are like, hey, let's figure out marriage. For the record, do that. That's great. You're probably going to want to draw upon more than your collective one-month married wisdom. Right? This is discipleship. Discipleship in, discipleship out. In fact, Jesus says something similar to kind of make this principle clear. Matthew 10, 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Discipleship in. You need someone who is further along in their spiritual journey than you are. Now, I've said older and younger, Titus... Uh, we did see that in Titus. I don't think it's only age. To be sure, we can imagine scenarios where somebody comes to saving faith at the age of 65. And it just so happens to be that the believers that they're around are, are uh, quite a bit younger. Praise be to God that he works through all kinds of variety of different ways. Yes, but it is most likely that we'll find those who are older. Definitely those who are more experienced, further along on the spiritual journey. And they're to be thought of as spiritual apprenticeships. There's intention here. There's a flow You know, it's very common to have small groups, fellowship kind of groups, of similar ages and demographics, right? Right? It makes sense because, well, my family looks like this. Hey, their kids are the same age. Hey, we're the same bedtimes. Hey, we're both free about the same time slots. Um, There's a lot of ways. Hey, we're kind of going through the same stuff right now. We relate really easily together. That's no problem. I totally see how that works. I think it's a wonderful place for fellowship. But that's typically what happens in a small group. You get people most likely who look a lot like each other. And sometimes there's a great blessing to have the obvious strength of multi-generational small groups. We have older and younger in our small group. What a great blessing. And that's even wonderful. But discipleship, intentional pouring in to those younger, is probably still not quite able to happen in the typical modern American small group setting. You might need intentional slots where you say, I need a place where I know I'm getting poured into by somebody older than me, or I'm pouring into somebody younger than me. This might seem obvious, but your pool of disciplers, those who are older than you pouring into you, will necessarily decrease over time. This is really obvious, right? As you get older, there'll be less and less people older than you 
smaller pool to draw from, and I think part of that naturally should help us to shift our attention as we get older down to a growing pool of disciples younger than us, less experienced than us. So when you're 30, you go, okay, okay, I've learned a few things. Thank you, Lord, for getting me through some of these things. Hey, maybe, maybe now I should, there's, there's more people younger than me in my circle, my Christian circles, uh, than before. So maybe I should give some attention to that. And then you hit 40, you're like, well, now there's even more, and there's a fewer up, okay, so I'll still get discipleship here, but I want to make sure I'm pouring. And when you grow and grow in your 50s, and you hit 60, and there comes a point where there's, there's not a lot of people older than me, but they're a whole lot younger. And I think that's how that's supposed to work, that over time we turn our attention more and more to the upcoming generations, that discipleship will multiply from generation to generation. And of course, both people involved in discipleship, in these relationships, will be blessed. Of course, the older brother or sister may even learn things from the younger brother or sister. Praise be to God. And praise be to God for the humility that that will require to go, man, I've been a believer for 40 years. I never thought about that. That was helpful. Thank you. How wonderful it is when that happens. But that is typically happening in different ways. In fact, the Apostle Paul didn't write Titus, hey, so what new things do you know about the Lord I should know? Right? Priscilla and Aquila didn't go to Apollos and go like, man, you're saying different things than we had thought. Maybe we should adjust to you. They go, no, no, no. You need to learn. You need to come up to where we are in some of this. You need, you need to grow. Because if you don't think rightly about it that way, there won't be a path for Christian sanctification for your church body. You have to have that in mind in order for there to be ongoing growth. Brothers and sisters, you need discipleship, intentional planned time to sit down with somebody where they'll pour into you and help you understand good doctrine. Help you to understand how to, how to live out a marriage or new parents. Maybe, maybe in ministry or in business. There are all the different facets of life that there's somebody who's a little further down that road than you. That might have a ton to offer you. As a believer, this is how I started my businesses. And I've learned these things. Let me help you, younger entrepreneur brothers and sisters. Let's, this is how we do this. Uh, if you're an older parent, look down when you see someone have a new baby. Oh, that's so sweet. When are we getting together so we can help you understand a few things about parenting? We want you to know this. Hey, brand new to marriage. Those who are older should be turning their attention to that and saying, let us serve you in this. Let us help you in this. Let us step in and try to help you. Some of these are super obvious categories, but they're the kind of things that we need to be engaged in. Fellowship time and discipleship time. If you're an older brother or sister today, consider this a uh, challenge. Please find some brothers or sisters younger than you and prayerfully consider, Lord, there is at least an area or two or three in my life that I've learned some things that I'd like to help someone younger with. I'd like to warn them from these errors, encourage them in these good things, bring them into my life. You expose who that person is and I'll go after that person and say, hey, let's get together. Let's have coffee, let's do lunch, dinner, something like that. And whether it's a one-time, just want to make myself available to you, or it's an ongoing, hey, every week for a few months, or hey, um, let's just let's check in every quarter, give you another chance to kind of talk through life and things with me. Discipleship must be happening. Moving on, accountability. As you relate to other believers, you're going to need accountability. Accountability. This is confession of sins. This is correction. This is where rebuke happens. This is where brothers and sisters in your life pin your sin to the ground with you and help you put a bullet in its head. That's what we do together. Accountability. We've already seen in this series that confronting of sin is necessary, and we must deal with it directly. 
This, accountability, is the iron sharpening iron. Of course, some of this can happen in fellowship. It'll certainly be taking place in some measures in discipleship. But you are going to need people in your life that they know, they know it is chiefly their responsibility to call out sin they observe in you. Hey, hey, did you know that this is the group that I need that from? Oh, I, didn't, I thought we were just, oh, okay, great. Now I can readjust my attention. You want me to tell you what I think you need to do in your life? We have to have real accountability with each other because the epic, lifelong sin battle that we must wage every day, we're going to need reinforcements. It takes great, attention, great intention, great diligence, prayer, and time. And for the record, the five minutes you might get to go around in a circle at the end of your small group time and share your quick prayer request is not enough to deal with the deep, dark levels of sin in your heart that need to be mined out over decades. It's not enough. So if you're thinking, well, I have accountability because we go around the circles. My, 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 you know, my, my, uh, uh, my, my spouse is here and then his spouse is there and all the kids are kind of playing and running in and out. No, that's not what we're talking about, the accountability. It's a serious attention given to our sins that we can become more like Christ. You need to have that somewhere. It's got to take place. That someone will help you confront your sin and crush it. I think that it's unlikely that all of this can happen in a single group gathering. Maybe it can. Perhaps you're in a situation, the Lord has just blessed that you've got like a small group that all the different levels of believers and you have discipleship time over here and uh, you, you get together at different times of the week for accountability. Maybe the Lord has provided that. Praise God. But I think it's unlikely that these things can perhaps even happen with the same single group of people in your life. You may need to Get other believers around you. Sometimes it's just fellowship. Some relationships are, this is the serious, this is get down to discipleship time with some. And others, maybe peer level, hey, let's just share our sins and deal with those things, beat those things up. You know, one of the reasons that we wanted to bring this up and talk about these things at such a practical level is I think that small groups can be wonderful. I'm a great encourager of small groups. Get in a small group. We're coming around to September, which is the time we typically try to get a few more of those together and encourage people to get involved so we can have sign-ups in the lobby and help start new groups and all that. Wonderful, because those can check so many of the boxes of the one another's in the New Testament. But, but, many times I have seen believers say, found a church, check. Sign up for a small group, check. All my believing relationship issues are to be dealt with here. Probably not. Maybe not. Because time and time and time, time after another time, I keep finding people do this. They get involved in something like that, and for some reason they know there's something missing. They got good fellowship. They got a small group. They open the Bible a little bit. They pray a little bit with each other. But they have to acknowledge that after a year of that, they're really not growing as a believer. There's some major missing things in their life. But, 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 but they signed up for a small group. What else, what else is there? Brothers and sisters, so much more. So much more. For you to be a disciple, making disciple of Christ, building the kingdom of God, multiplying that number until he returns, is going to take a lot of intention and probably more than I got a night locked in in a given week or month that I set aside for other people. Here's why I think it's helpful. This is why I think this is helpful. I'm not disparaging small groups at all. This is why I think it's helpful. Because I've known small groups who tried to make that one group accomplish everything. 
maybe 12 adults, 20 kids and growing sometimes, right? And they have dinner together, and it's awesome. They love it. They share about their life, and everybody kind of spins up about, yeah, my mother-in-law's coming out of town. Oh, how's that going? Oh, hey, that, that, that my boss I'm trying to share the gospel with. Oh, yeah, tell us an update on that. Maybe a loss or something to celebrate. And it happens around the dinner table, and the, the kids are, are, are playing around and kind of making a mess. And even if you've got disciplined kids, eventually one of them is going to run in. Dad, Dad, Mara's bleeding. She went down the slide face first. And you're going to have to deal with it. You're going to be interrupted. There's going to be an end to that amount of time. And you, you get together. You try to spend some time in the Word, and you should. It's good to do that. But then you had that five-minute go-around, and everybody, quick, okay, uh, go ahead, go ahead. The babies are melting down. Your, your accountability thing, what's your prayer request? Got it, sick dog. Okay, what, ne- what next? And then one at a time, you do the go around a circle and say prayers for each other, one person on your left. Guys, it's wonderful to have that. It is. I am not saying don't do that. Do more of that. But if after that's over, you think, is this all? Is, is this what Christian day-in, day-out life is supposed to look like? Probably not. There may be some other things that you're desperate for in your life that God made you desperate for. And that small group can't accomplish all of it. And that's a good thing to see that and know that. That you can be grateful for what that is supposed to do as you seek for what's next. I've known brothers and sisters who've gotten involved in solid Bible study time. Two hours every Wednesday morning. I'm in the Word with brothers in Christ. We're pounding through the Scriptures. But have gone months without having a meal with other brothers and sisters. So they're getting good Bible time and maybe even prayer time. No fellowship outside of there. And going, well, tons of Bible, a good amount of prayer, maybe even a little accountability in there, but something's missing. Yeah, you need fellowship. You need family life. See, that one is not going to cut it for you. You're going to need to be involved with other brothers and sisters at a different level. I, and I, this one's probably the biggest to me. I've known many, 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 many huge percentage, majority percentage of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, who maybe have a good Bible study going, maybe got a good text chat with some people that they can share some thoughts with and get some good ideas on and deal with needs to be met. And uh, maybe they're even part of a small group where they get some fellowship time, pray together, do meals together, but they have never, ever been actively and intentionally discipled. I'm not guessing this. This is one of the things that over the course of almost a solid year, I've been asking brothers and sisters all throughout our church, Mission Church, all throughout our church. And so, listen, our church is awesome. People don't complain. They're not going, yeah, what's, the, what's wrong with all those older brothers and sisters not serving me? No, no, no. No one acted like that. But so many times when I've asked about discipleship, they go, you know, I don't, I don't think I've ever had anyone offer that. You and I are going to need to continually evaluate our life in order to make sure that these things are happening. Some people will want one group or gathering to accomplish everything on the list. That's just highly unlikely to work out. So rather than fixing your eyes on the group or gathering, get check, did that thing, consider the one another's and adjust your life to match those. I'm going to close with four, very, very quickly here, four quickly stated points of application that may help you solve that problem. Number one, spread out. Get to know more people at your church. Broaden your relationships with one another. If you're blessed to be at a church that has more people than can fit into one or two small groups, 
then you have access to a larger pool of brothers and sisters. Take advantage of it. There may be some disciplers there. There may be some disciples there for you to pour into. Receive from, pour into. There may be those that are especially suited. Well, I didn't know you lived two doors down from me. Wow, this is really obvious that we should be in pretty regular fellowship. Kids the same age? Wow, this is, they go to the same school. They do the same kind of activities. Maybe the Lord's just setting it right up, making it easy for you, T-ball style, that you can get a home run on something simple as that. Spread out. Get to know more people at your church. You'll never know who's out there that God may want you to be in contact with on one of these important things. Second, get gritty. Get gritty. You may need to approach Christian relationships with more of a guerrilla warfare mentality than a conventional warfare mentality, especially in certain seasons. If you're a planner, you like to have things on the schedule a month or two out, raise your hand real quick. Who, who are you? Not me. Even the planners don't like raising their hands because like, he didn't warn me about this beforehand, right? If that's you, you may especially need to think through this. It's possible that you could be the person who schedules out small group on this day, meet with a new family once a month, do these kind of things. Perhaps in certain seasons, it needs to be guerrilla warfare, whatever it takes. We're meeting on Thursday this week, next week, Tuesday, the week after that, Friday night. Some of you are going, no, no, it has to be the same. No, it doesn't have to be the same. It might not even be the exact same group all the time for a particular season. You may need to spend the next six months dealing with that one particular sin issue that's got to be crushed. Can't grow past this season if you don't find a way to deal with that thing. Get that under the microscope with a few other brothers and sisters and crush it. Get gritty. I want you to hear this. I am not trying to convince you. Hopefully you hear this. I am not trying to say you need three or four or five or six groups. I am not saying that at all. I am saying season to season to season, you may need to emphasize one of these over the other. You may need to go, you know what? My, my, my family, new at a, brand new at a new church here. Um, we just need to get to know people right now. My wife feels so alone because we moved here from out of state and there's just, there's just nobody here. She's befriended and she's just alone all day long. I, we, we need that itch scratch. We need that box check. That's kind of priority to get that going right now. Well, then just find a small group that you can just do that with in this season, okay? And maybe the Lord will find some really good brothers and sisters for you to have accountability with after you've gotten to know them for a couple of years. Maybe discipleship. Maybe the Lord right now is saying, you need active, intentional growth in these few categories. And I put a few older brothers and sisters in your life that you should go ask this week and say, can you help me with this? Can you spend some time with me on this thing? Spread out. Get to know more people. Get gritty. One-time gatherings, seasonal gatherings, topical gatherings. Third, trim the fat. Trim the fat. There may be a bunch of stuff filling up your life, filling up your schedule that produces no eternal fruit at all. Get rid of it. Gone. There's no space for you. There's no eternal value in this. It's got to go. Because there are other things that deserve your attention. Make space for the better stuff. Even the good stuff, like the small groups and the, uh, the Bible studies and the plans you're in, some of those might need to be adjusted from season to season. You might need to go back to your small group after we've talked about this today, and say, hey, we're out of small group for the next four months. Why? Because my family doesn't have all the bandwidth in the world, and we realize we need something else in this next season. Not because we don't love you. Not because you're not good enough to accomplish that. But this is not what this group is designed to do. We're going to pour into some discipleship stuff for a little while. We'll be back. Pray for us in that time. Some of you love planning out in advance. That's great. You may even need to build margin in because there could be people that the Lord will bring into your life. New families come to the church six months from now. They're going to need to meet you. 
You don't know who you are. You need to have slots available. Oh, I've already scheduled out every dinner for the next year and a half. You don't, there's no space for the new Christian. No, build margin. So when the Lord moves in ways you weren't prepared for, you're prepared. And last, have right expectations. Some groups are better for one thing. Some gatherings are better for another. Getting the most out of your relationships in a way that is mutually beneficial will require that you know why you're in relationship with others. And here's my final point. If you're, if you're in a small group type of thing or a Bible study, you gather formally with some other believers. You know you'll be together with them sometime this month. Talk about what's the purpose of this gathering. What are we going to be able to emphasize? What are we maybe not going to be able to accomplish at this one gathering that we may need to do another time or find another way to solve in our lives? If you get clear about the expectations of that group gathering, it will be able to thrive where it's supposed to be and hopefully serve you and others quite well. At this church, we really want more for you than just Sundays plus a small group. Sundays plus I'm in a Bible study. Sundays plus whatever that thing is. We want for our church to experience the one another's. We want for you to take those things seriously, prioritize those things, and whatever format, whatever way you accomplish that, we want to help come around and make sure that that can happen. Brothers and sisters, I want for you to grow in your relationships with one another so that someday you'd be able to say, man, that season at the Mission Church, we had the single best relationships that we've ever had. We want you to thrive here. And that's what we've been praying for throughout this series, and hopefully it's been a service to you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are grateful for your word, and I pray that it would be fruitful, that it would serve my brothers and sisters well. Be with us now as we share communion and close our service. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're a believer with us today, we want you to share communion with us. And when I say believer, I mean you don't have to be a member of this church. All we ask is that you're a person who can say with confidence, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. There's no other condition necessary for me to have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. If you can say that, then we welcome you to come forward, grab the elements. There is a double stack cup. You can grab the stack, bring it back to your seat, and uh, we'll take the elements together after everyone has had a chance to get them. I'll pray, and then you can come forward and grab those. Lord, as we turn our attention to communion, I pray that we would take these elements seriously that represent the body and blood of Christ, broken and shed for us, because we are sinners, because we are not worthy. Thank you that even at this very moment, as we know that we are not worthy to take communion in our sinful selves, Christ has made us worthy by the sacrifice that this meal points to. So let us participate in it with that knowledge of our sin that put Christ on the cross and the grace that we've received in that, that now we participate in it together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.